0: Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello, and welcome to British Murders. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and we're now at the fourth episode of season three. Before I get into this episode, I just want to shout out two people who have recently helped support the show. I've been meaning to do a shout out for a couple of weeks now, but my memory is truly shocking. Anyone who knows me can back me up on that. Firstly, thank you Lizette Shield for buying me five beers on June 5th. I've never been to Seattle, but I'm happy to hear that I have at least one fan over there. And finally, thank you to Katrina Luth for buying me three beers on June 14th. Cat stumbled across the show by accident. That's the best way. Um, and she absolutely loves it. So thanks for that, Kat. You can hear about how to make a donation such as that at the end of the show. Now, it's been a while since I talked about a case from back in the day. Over there. The first three episodes of season three involve crimes taking place in the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. We'll go in old school again today. By old school, I mean the 1950s. Sorry, I couldn't resist. It's the millennial in me. The 50s were such a long time ago. As always, let's take a look at the location where the events of this episode take place. We're back in northeast England this week in the area of Windy Nook, which is located in the town of Gateshead in Tyne and Weir. It got its name due to its hilly location at a crossroads, which means there is a lot of wind running through the area due to its exposure to the elements. Makes sense to me as to why they'd name it that. It sort of reminds me of Windy Castle in Peppa Pig. Tell me you have a toddler without telling me you have a toddler, right? According to the 2011 UK Census, Windy Nook and neighbouring area White Hills has a population of just under 10,000 people, so you can appreciate this is a really small place. Even so, it's home to a couple of interesting things. Firstly, Windy Nook Nature Reserve is located right on Windy Nook's doorstep, obviously. It's a protected wildlife area in which you should be able to see a variety of birds and butterflies whilst you're out walking. I've had a look at some of the photos of the area online. Now, it doesn't look like there's any picnic benches or anything or a park for the kids, but the scenery does look lovely. Another interesting I found that is located in Windy Nook is an environmental sculpture simply named the Windy Nook or Richard Cole's Windy Nook. Created by, you guessed it, a sculptor named Richard Cole in 1986, it's a former colliery slag, I hope I'm saying that right, which was turned into one of Europe's largest environmental sculptures. It stands at 160 metres high and covers 5,500 square metres. If you are wondering what a colliery slag heap is, by the way, let me explain. It's not something rude, despite containing the word slag. So firstly, the word colliery refers to a coal mine and its surrounding buildings in the UK. Coal mining and the UK go hand in hand. It's a very important part of our history. A slag heap is essentially a large pile of waste which miners would have removed whilst mining for coal. They accumulate to the point where they become their own landmass. So Richard Cole essentially turned one of those landmasses into a more aesthetically pleasing piece of art. Now then... That's a brief history of Windy Nook, and a very brief insight into the UK's coal mining industry. The coal mining has nothing to do with this episode, by the way. Let me finally now introduce you to the subject of this week's episode. Her name was Mary Elizabeth Wilson, and she was born in County Durham in either 1889 or 1893. It can sometimes be quite difficult to find the exact date for some of these older cases, as not all of the information is readily available or referenceable. As with a lot of these historic cases, the crimes took place when Mary was middle-aged. This wasn't a case of her being a violent criminal with an extensive history of convictions. The earliest piece of information known about Mary and her early life was that she married a man named John Knowles in either 1912 or 1914. So that puts her anywhere between 19 and 25, depending on which year she was born and which year they were married. You've got to love these old cases with varying dates. They're a nightmare to research. One thing we know for sure, though, is that the marriage lasted a long time. The pair were married for over 40 years until John Knowles' death in 1955. John had been ill for around a year prior to his death and was said to have both high blood pressure and an enlarged heart. What's interesting about that is that whilst Mary and John were married, another man ended up moving in with them. Confusingly, it was another man named John, with his full name being John Russell. Names were simpler back then, so it's not surprising that in a lot of these older stories, people tend to share the same name. It reminds me of the season 2 finale which focused on pot and poisoner Sarah Dazley. In that story, pretty much every single man in her life was named William. You honestly can't make this stuff up. What's even funnier than that is that another source claims that John Russell's name was actually George Russell, though I believe that George was in fact John's middle name, so he was called John George Russell. Who are you supposed to believe? Let's call him John, for sake of ease, because for one thing, it's funnier. So John Russell moved in. But you may be thinking, why? Well, he was Mary's lover, of course. I'm not sure if this was just a common thing to do back in the day or whether it's a trait of serial killers but most of the female cases I cover from years past involve having a husband with lovers on the side. Now once John Knowles had died Mary promoted John Russell from lover to partner and they quickly got married only five months after John Knowles' death. The next piece of this bizarre puzzle came in 1956 when John Russell suddenly passed away. He'd been ill for roughly a week and was suffering from bronchial trouble. His official cause of death was pneumonia. You may have noticed there's a cheeky little pattern forming here already. At this point, no suspicions were raised regarding either of the John's deaths. Natural causes was put down as the cause of death in both cases, which meant that, if Mary had been involved somehow, she had seemingly gotten away with it. As with most marriages, Mary was left with both her husband's inheritances. The total sum for both was £42, which equates to roughly 1000 and a bit pounds in 2021. I did a bit of investigating with regards to how long someone has to wait before they can get married again. In the case of your husband or wife dying, you simply need to present the death certificate of your former spouse when getting remarried. In the case of a divorce, you need to receive your decree absolute confirming your divorce and then you can remarry immediately. There isn't a minimum waiting period, which surprised me. A decree absolute, by the way, is the final document that means the marriage is legally at an end. By now, you may have guessed what our Mary did next. She met a 76-year-old man named Oliver Leonard and, you guessed it, they got married very quickly. Mary herself was either 63 or 68 at this point. Let's go with 63 for sake of ease and pretend that she was 100% born in 1893. Once again, there's a lot of discrepancies with regards to the marriage date, but the following chain of events, including the key dates, are according to case prosecutor Mr. R. W. Payne. So here's the backstory with regards to Mary and Oliver. In May 1956, Oliver Leonard visited a local cafe and started chatting to the owner, a lady named Alice Connolly. The cafe was actually run by Alice and her husband. They lived upstairs on the premises as many cafe owners do. Oliver noted that the cafe was a touch small and the Connollys should consider moving to a larger establishment. He must have had the gift of the gab as Oliver managed to persuade the couple to do just that. The fact he lent them 60 quid, around 1500 in 2021, probably helped as well. So what is it we take from that? Well, it's clear that Oliver isn't short of a bob or two by which I mean he seemed fairly well-off money-wise. When the Connollys finally made the move to a larger property, Oliver ended up living with them as a tenant. His ulterior motives were now revealed. In fairness to the Connollys, they did repay Oliver's loan in full, so they must have been happy with his original offer, and to repay it in full must have been a part of the agreement. Here's where our Mary comes back into the story. She visited the new café, my guess is perhaps she was a regular at the old cafe and followed the Connollys to the new location. So she's talking to Alice Connolly about this and that, and the conversation turns to Oliver Leonard. One would assume that Alice explained to Mary why they had moved premises and how they had afforded to, revealing that their knight in shining armour was now in fact their tenant. Realising everything we have just discussed, that Oliver likely had a few bob to his name, Mary asked Alice, Has that old so-and-so got any money? When Alice responded with confirmation that, yes, Oliver was a touch wealthy, Mary then asked if she could see him. She referred to Oliver as a poor old soul, which is interesting given her own age. Mary and Oliver soon became very close with Mary visiting the property often. It didn't take long before Oliver decided that he would rather become Mary's lodger than continue living with the Connellys. The new couple married at the Jarrow Register Office on September 20th, 1956, roughly four months after they met. Jarrow is another town in Tain and Weir located roughly six miles northwest of Windy Nook. Once married, Mary waited only a matter of days before seeking an appointment with an insurance agent. She wanted to take out a life insurance policy on Oliver. Her intentions are clear as day at this point, aren't they? Frustratingly for Mary though, the insurance agent advised her that due to Oliver's age, she wouldn't be able to insure his life. Things were quiet for a few more days until Oliver suddenly started having issues with his chest. He had chest pains which were severe enough to warrant him visiting his local doctor on October 1st, 1956. After conducting a standard health check, the doctor noted that the issues were indeed located in Oliver's chest and potentially related to his heart. Unsure what the problem was, Oliver's doctor prescribed him with some cough medicine in the hope that it would clear up the issues in his chest. Now the same tests we have available today weren't available back in the 50s, so I guess logically it makes sense as to why Oliver was prescribed cough medicine. As you know by now though, I am far from a doctor. In the two days after visiting his doctor, Oliver's condition dramatically worsened. Neighbours were called to Mary and Oliver's home in the early morning of October 3rd. Oliver had apparently fallen out of bed. The neighbours explained that Mary gave them a cup of what she said was tea and asked them to give it to Oliver. When they did, Oliver took one sip before spitting it out on the floor. He then violently knocked the cup out of the neighbours' hands. A few observations I took from this are as follows. To me, it seemed like Mary asked the neighbours round to act as witnesses in her cover story or alibi. The fact that she gave a cup of tea made by her to the neighbour to then give to Oliver indicates that not only was the tea tainted, but Oliver would be more likely to accept a drink from the neighbours rather than Mary as he likely knew by this point that any drink given to him by Mary would be contaminated. The first set of neighbours ended up leaving shortly after they arrived. Oliver had some spirit left in him, clearly. Not long after that, a different set of neighbours were called to the house by Mary at around 6am. The same story was told to them. Oliver had fallen out of bed. This time, his condition was far worse, and the neighbours suggested Mary call a doctor as they believed Oliver was dying. He was suffering from major spasms. When the doctor finally arrived at midday, Oliver Leonard was already dead. At the time of his death, Oliver's doctor had no concerns regarding foul play. So, if you're keeping score, Mary has now married three men, all of which have died, with the most recent two of the three dying a short time after their respective wedding days. Here's my question to you, dear listener. If you're Mary, what's your next move? If you're the one responsible for all these deaths, Will you maybe lay low for a while? Keep your head down? Let's say for argument's sake, you're not responsible for their deaths and just have the world's worst luck with husbands. Maybe you'll still keep to yourself for a while and reevaluate your life before moving on with someone new. Well, you probably won't be surprised to hear that Mary didn't lay low for long. She firstly made sure to quickly wind up Oliver's financial affairs. Once all the necessary bills had been paid, Mary was left with around £50, pounds, which is roughly 1200 quid in 2021. Again, for those keeping score, she's so far gained £92 pounds from the deaths of her three husbands, which is just short of two and a half grand in today's money. Mary soon started a new relationship with a man named Ernest Wilson, who, like Oliver, was also 76 years old. He was a retired engineer and widower. She had moved into a bungalow owned by Ernest, and once she learned that he had a bit of money to his name, the pair soon started a relationship. Why change a winning formula, right? They married at Jarrow Register Office on October twenty-eighth, 1957. Surely the Jarrow Register Office at this point was suspicious. Even if they weren't, Mary's dark sense of humour should have raised some eyebrows when she said to the registrar, There should be a discount for me. At the wedding reception, Mary truly became an architect of her own demise when her wicked sense of humour raised even more eyebrows. Whilst Ernest was entertaining new guests playing the piano, his new wife was asked what she planned to do with all the leftover food. Mary quipped, Keep them for the funeral. In fairness, that's pretty funny. Ernest himself even laughed. The tragic thing is though, that Ernest actually did end up passing away on november twelfth, nineteen fifty seven, a mere fifteen days after the wedding. The day before his death, november eleventh, was when Ernest's doctor was asked by Mary to make a house call. Ernest told doctor Wallace that he was having chest pains, and it was revealed that, as with Oliver, his heart was the problem. Dr. Wallace ended up leaving the house shortly after he arrived, at Ernest's request, but was called back the following morning, november twelfth and found Ernest dead. The cause of death was initially put down to cardiomuscular failure by Dr. Wallace. Cardiomuscular failure, known nowadays as cardiomyopathy, is a general term for diseases of the heart muscle where the walls of the heart chambers have become stretched, thickened or stiff. This affects the heart's ability to pump blood around the body, which, in Ernie's case, caused heart failure. It didn't take long for word to spread about Mary's dark jokes at the reception and the fact that Ernest was now the fourth husband of hers to die. After several calls from concerned locals, the police finally started to take the claim seriously and ordered for the bodies of both Oliver Leonard and Ernest Wilson to be exhumed from Hebbin and Heworth cemeteries. The post-mortems were carried out in the town of Hebbin by Dr W. Stewart, a police pathologist, and Dr Ian Barclay of the Home Office Forensic Science Lab. They found traces of the chemical element phosphorus in both men's bodies. One thirtieth of a grain was found in Ernest's stomach, and one hundredth of a grain was found in his intestines. Similarly, one eightieth of a grain of elemental phosphorus was found in Oliver's stomach, and one twentieth of a grain was found in his intestines. Dr. Barclay also noted finding wheat bran in both men's bodies. As a result... The two men's new causes of death were put down to phosphorus poisoning. Mary was arrested by Detective Chief Inspector A.S. Mitchell and Inspector C.B. Watson at a hotel in Heben, where she'd been staying. She was officially charged with the murder of Ernest Wilson on December 11th, 1957. When the arresting officers told Mary she was going to be charged with the murder of Ernest, she replied, I have nothing to say at this stage. Mary was later alleged on February 10th, 1958 to have murdered Oliver Leonard as well as Ernest Wilson. The method of murder was said to be phosphorus poisoning after either consuming rat, beetle or cockroach poison. Both elemental phosphorus and wheat bran were found in those three types of poison back then. Mary pleaded not guilty to both charges at Leeds Assizes, an old name for an English court. The trial began on March 24th, 1958, and was overseen by Mr Justice Hinchcliffe. The jury contained nine men and three women. Mary didn't give any evidence at the trial, though she did at one point say, men like me, and I like men. Fair enough, I suppose. Her defence strategy was to explain how there was minimal data available with regard to elemental phosphorus poisoning. Therefore, how could Mary have known she would kill her two husbands with that method? The defence even attempted to lay blame on the two victims by suggesting that they had been taking sexual stimulation drugs in the form of pills, which at the time were known to contain phosphorus. That is a logical argument, given the age of the two victims, however, luckily, the jury didn't buy it. The trial ended on March ninth, 1958, five days after it began, and Mary Wilson was found guilty of the murder of both Oliver Leonard and Ernest Wilson. It took the jury only an hour and 15 minutes before they returned with the guilty verdict. Mary became the first woman to be sentenced to death after the passing of the Homicide Act in March 1957. Her execution date was set for June 4th, 1958 at 9am at Durham Prison. Despite this, Mary never met the hangman's noose. Due to her advanced age, back then I guess being in your mid to late 60s was classed as old, She was granted clemency by Home Secretary Rab Butler. Her sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. While serving out a sentence at Holloway Women's Prison in London, police exhumed the bodies of both John Knowles and John Russell. As with Oliver and Ernest, their bodies were found to contain high levels of elemental phosphorus. A second trial didn't take place, however, as there didn't really seem to be any point. Mary was already serving out a life sentence and had escaped the death penalty. A second trial would just have been a waste of time and resources. At one point, Mary was moved up to Durham Prison for a month so that her friends and family could visit her more easily. After returning to Holloway, Mary eventually died on December 5th, 1962. I couldn't find out what her cause of death was, and again, some sources claim that she died in 1963, but they don't give a specific date. The day I got of her exact death was from an edition of The Guardian newspaper issued on January 10th, 1963. The way Mary's friends and relatives found out about her death was when all their Christmas cards were returned with an official statement attached, which announced that she had died. Mary's friends noted that she remained high-spirited right up until the end, and maintained her innocence. And that was a story of British murderer, Mary Wilson. Or should it be, alleged murderer? What do you think? Did Mary commit the crime she was convicted of? Or did she just have rotten luck with her husbands, who all happened to use the same sexual stimulation pills? I mean, they were all old. Personally, based on what we know about Mary's character, I think there's no doubt that she poisoned them all just to gain a few quid. Let me know on social media what you think, or in the YouTube comments. And for more on British murders, please feel free to check me out on social media and YouTube. My link tree is in the episode description. Merchandise you can purchase at Teespring. Again, that's in my link tree. There's Patreon, where you can do a monthly subscription for some perks, like ad-free episodes and they come out a day early. Or you can donate on a one-off basis on buymeacoffee.com. All funds received go to the show's production and research, and it's greatly appreciated if you want to suggest a case... Do that via email britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com hit me up on social media or youtube any reviews can be left on itunes and PodChaser, which helps increase the show's exposure they're much appreciated as well but yeah that's it for another episode for now i've been Stuart blues this has been british murders thanks so much for listening until next time cheerio